Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Such a joy to come together and worship the name of the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Let's continue our worship this morning as we turn to the book of Genesis. Open up God's word to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. So Genesis chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again, as has been said, for the privilege of coming together, opening up your holy and inspired word to consider this historical account. And we just pray for your mercy this morning that you would Allow us to focus on the truths revealed in it, that you would change our hearts through this text even, that you would recognize, uh, allow us to recognize what a wonderful Savior we have and what exactly we've been delivered from. We love you, Lord. We pray, praise your holy name. We pray that you'd be glorified in this time. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, here we are. Exactly four months after beginning our consideration of the first book, of the Bible, 16 sermons later, we've finally made it to Genesis chapter 3. I'll just be straight up with you this morning, I'm not sure how I feel about it. We had some pastoral issues last week that drew me away from my studies, leading the other elders to encourage me to just focus on Genesis chapter 3, and I said, I don't want to focus on Genesis chapter 3. I live Genesis chapter 3. In fact, these issues stem from Genesis chapter 3. I'm always in Genesis chapter 3. I want to stay in Genesis chapter 2. I want to stay in that place where husbands and wives get along, where there was peace among men, peace between man and animals, peace with all creation and peace with our creator. I want to stay in that perfect environment where sin and death did not reign. I, I want to walk among the delightful orchards and wade in the pristine rivers of Genesis chapter 2. I'm tired of Genesis chapter 3. All we've ever known is Genesis chapter 3 from our birth, from our conception even. We've been in Genesis chapter 3. We learned to walk in Genesis chapter 3. We learn to talk in Genesis 3. We go to school in Genesis 3. We go to work in Genesis 3. We come to church in Genesis 3. We get married in Genesis chapter 3. We start families in Genesis 3. All of our relationships are established, formed, and maintained in this Genesis chapter 3 environment. Our papers and magazines and TV broadcasts reflect Genesis chapter 3. Our internet news feeds are full of Genesis chapter 3. Our bodies are ravaged by Genesis chapter 3. All suffering and death throughout the history of the world stems from Genesis chapter 3. Everything we do, we eat, we sleep, we breathe, and we die in Genesis chapter 3. And we died in Genesis chapter 3. In that case, maybe we should move forward and study Genesis chapter 3. Actually, I agree with Chris, who said last week, this is the most important chapter of all Scripture, as it relates to us anyhow, because it details how we all got into this mess in the first place. So, Lord willing, we'll spend the next six weeks in Genesis chapter 3. The next three weeks, we'll consider the first 13 verses alone. This week, verses 1 through 6, the deception. 
We'll look at Eve's role in all of this. That she was deceived into sinning against her creator. Next week, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the direction. Adam's deliberate sinning against his creator and the subsequent fall of mankind as we all went astray. The third week, verses 8 through 13, the deflection. As these now fallen creatures attempt to shift the focus and the blame from themselves in hopes of avoiding accountability for their own actions. Accountability, which comes in verses 14 through 19, but uh, not only through verses 14 through 19, but throughout the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book, the rest of the Bible, and all of world history, even up to and including today. That's what we'll be considering together. But all with the blessed hope of the restoration and the reconciliation which comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we plead with our Creator, along with the hymnist, to shine through the gloom and point us to the skies, which is exactly what he does throughout the rest of his holy and inspired word. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's dive in here. Verse 1, point 1 in your outline. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second here. The serpent? The snake? The nahash? This crafty, shrewd creature who, because we have the rest of the story, we know was possessed by Satan himself in this garden. Satan, who clear at the end of the written revelation is referred to again as the serpent of old, following his being cast out of the throne room of heaven a second time at the end of the age where John writes, the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, Why is he in this garden? How did he get here? Why is he in this perfectly delightful, perfectly beautiful, perfectly sinless garden? What's he doing here? Why is he able to go on to do what what we know he goes on to do? What we just read he will go on to do. Why is he here? All these questions, they begin to arise. Many of them are unanswerable. If God made the serpent, which again, uh, here is referred to as a snake, though I don't believe he was a snake as we would know a snake to be until verse 14, but if God made the serpent, which he did, because it says right here, this particular serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that God had made, and if this serpent was then the agent through which temptation to sin came, was God the author of sin? Was, it, was he the one who caused us to sin, <clears throat> or at least the cause of our being tempted to sin? Well, again, such, uh, ultimately such deep and profound speculations prove to be just that, speculation. I've seen many men try to explain these things in human terms. It's not pretty. It only ends in embarrassing fashion and with erroneous philosophy, so we're not going to do that here. Rather... Throughout this account, we're just going to rest in and say with full confidence that because of our understanding of Yahweh God's nature, which we've learned throughout the first two chapters, his perfections, his attributes, including his perfect holiness and goodness and righteousness, we're, going to say, we're just going to say for sure that he was not the author of sin. He was not the author of evil. Rather, as we'll see, sin came through man's disobedience, yet... Here is the serpent. Here's the serpent, the snake or dragon, at least at at this point, who is possessed by Satan, who is clearly evil. So how did he get here? Why was he allowed to be here? How is he still active today? Hard questions, hard questions, questions we may never fully know the answer to in this life anyhow. But what we don't want to do is uh, present theory as truth or manufacture some solution to settle our own minds if it means that the character of God is in any way diminished. We'll see the result of such folly here in a moment. I do like what one preacher said concerning this tension here. Quote, God did not create evil. He did not author evil. He did not make evil, but listen carefully, very important, God did decree evil to use use evil as a part of his eternal plan, okay? He will not be culpable for it, 
He did not bring it into existence. That would be impossible because God is good, all good and only good. Therefore, whatever comes out of him is all good and only good. God can therefore produce only good. And what is evil but the absence of that good, which is a choice made by the reasonings based upon the information revealed through his creatures. But God was not caught off guard, he says. In fact, God decreed that evil would be part of his plan. He does use it for his purposes, he says. And I think that's a a wonderful summary. Couldn't put it any better myself. Uh, God did not create evil. He is not the author of evil. He is not to blame for evil or be blamed for evil, but he did decree it, and he does use it to accomplish his purposes. But how that all works together exactly, I can't explain that to you. And frankly, I'm not going to try this morning. Trust me, it wouldn't be pleasant for anybody. (laughs) Instead, I would just encourage you, as I am, to be okay with the tension. We don't need to be able to sufficiently explain all things in order to have a settled mind and heart. There's lots of things that I can't explain. Uh, Who wrote the book of Acts, Luke or the Holy Spirit? How is Jesus both fully God and fully man? Uh, How do you explain the hypostatic union? How were pyramids constructed? Who built Stonehenge? Why do men have nipples? So on and so on. I don't know that. You know that? Well, how do you explain a talking serpent? I can't. Oh, then it's a myth then, I guess, right? Just because we can't explain it. What about the talking donkey in Numbers chapter 22? Myth? That fish that swallowed Jonah? Myth? How about the plagues of Egypt? How about the parting of the Red Sea, the burning bush, the falling walls of Jericho, the valley of dry bones, the humiliation of the prophets of Baal. Myths? How about the perfect life of Jesus Christ and all his miracles? How about the resurrection on the third day and the angels who asked the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? Is that all myth to you? Well, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain and we are of all men to be pitied. But he has been raised. If you don't believe that, you are still in your sin. And the wrath of God remains on you. And I'll just tell you straight up. The genesis of your unbelief starts right here in Genesis chapter 3. So a word to the so-called wise. uh, If you question the historicity of this account or even attempt through mere human intellect and reasoning to sufficiently explain the unexplainable, including how and why evil came into the world, ultimately you'll only end up questioning the character of the one who decreed it in the first place. You don't want to be there. If that's the case in your life, uh, you of all people ought to pay close attention to the serpent's words in the second half of verse 1. As he says to this woman, indeed, has God said You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, just a couple things on this point here, which I've called the delicate distortion. That may seem like a strange heading at first, but I want you to to know something about this serpent, okay? A lot of times we think of Eve frolicking in the garden off by herself, hanging out under a tree, when all of a sudden this deadly viper with red eyes hangs down with an apple in his mouth that he suddenly drops into her lap. But we don't see any of that here. Did you see any of that that we just read? I didn't see any of that. No. First off, there's no mention of any apple here. Just the the same word used in chapter 1, pere, the the fruit of the tree. Some folks think it was grapes. They think that this is a reference to Eve getting drunk when she ate too many of them. I think that's ridiculous. Some think this fruit is merely uh, a symbolic nod to the act of sexual intercourse, which I feel is equally ridiculous. It seems clear that this is uh, some kind of literal fruit here from a literal tree that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but we don't know if it was an apple. It could have been an apple, I guess. Uh, I also don't think it's uh, appropriate to assume there was any sort of chemical makeup in this fruit that engaged the curse, okay? It wasn't the fruit itself that was the issue here, but rather the rebellion of the creatures. 
including the serpent, by the way, who, again, I don't even think was a snake at this point. I believe, because of some other references throughout the Scripture, that this was some kind of beautiful creature. I I think the dragon descriptor in Revelation 12 is more accurate here. Maybe it was some reptilian creature. We don't even know about it. But one who here was not scary or terrifying, but likely was very beautiful, very alluring. He was a serpent with a silver, flattering tongue with an eloquent and smooth cadence. I think he had charm. I think he had charisma. Notice here what he says to her. Indeed, has God said, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, this may seem elementary at first glance, but consider the implications of this question. First of all, it's a temptation, no doubt, and we'll get to that in a moment. But, but what we see here, besides the first question mark in our English Bible, is the first faux exaltation of man and the first attempted distortion of God's perfect character. Okay, For, From our time in Genesis thus far, we know God is perfectly good and perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, and even Satan himself knows that. Don't get it twisted. Satan is no unbeliever here. Satan absolutely believes in God. Did you know that, that Satan believes in God? He knows God exists. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. Satan is not saying here, Eve, what are you doing following some dumb religious rule? There's no such thing as God. You should be your own God. Control your own destiny. No, that's another lie that he uses even today, a lie that billions of people fall for. But here he's not denying God's existence at all. And he's not even tempting the woman to deny God's existence either. Rather, he's tempting her to deny God's character. And and he deceives her into thinking that if God was truly good... He wouldn't hold anything back from her or her husband. So he says, in essence, now Eve, do you think God would actually keep this wonderfully beautiful fruit from you if he was really good? Don't don't you and your husband deserve to partake in this good fruit? Why would God not want you, good people, to have this good fruit from this good tree? It's it's subtle. It's smooth. It's shrewd. It's crafty. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's in line with his nature. Not the actual serpent or the creature, not the animal that was possessed, but the nature of the one who did the possessing. This has always been the goal of Satan, to usurp the authority of Yahweh God through deceiving his creatures. Ezekiel chapter 28 is a well-known prophecy concerning a human king, the king of Tyre, but also most certainly alludes to the fall of Shatan, or Satan, the adversary, the accuser in the Old Testament, the devil in the New Testament. Listen to this. Thus says Lord Yahweh, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. That doesn't sound like any man that I know. It goes deeper. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who who covers, and I placed you there. You were On the holy mountain of God, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the days that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, again, many folks, including myself, think that's a nod to Shatan, who fell from heaven the first time because of this unrighteousness, but was then and is still now allowed access into the throne room of heaven. Think of Job, for example. In Isaiah chapter 14, uh, we also hear of this original fall here. Isaiah writes, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. 
Now, I can't come up here and, and say for 100% that these prophecies are a reference to this serpent in this garden, but Jesus also referenced the same event as he spoke with the 70 he sent out to preach the kingdom of God. The 70 who returned to him with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. His reply? He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus saw Satan falling from heaven down to this earth, which is why John calls him the deceiver of the whole world. Paul says he's the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Isaiah even goes on to describe exactly what prompted Satan's falling. Notice the five I wills here, okay? But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's Satan's goal, to usurp the authority of God. And how he does this is by attacking God's character. And since he can't accuse the perfect creator to the creator, who is infinitely perfect in all his ways, including knowledge, he instead goes after the finite creature, He goes after us. He convinces them. He convinces us to doubt and then to deny Yahweh's holy and righteous character, which is exactly what we see here in these opening verses here. Ultimately, this is a form of insubordination, which is key here. Don't forget now, this serpent, he's but a mere creature himself. He's an animal who, in God's perfect order in Genesis chapter 2, is subordinate to both the man and the woman. The man and the woman who were charged to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Name them, command them, direct them. Now, a subordinate uh, to both humans and God comes to the woman and says, Oh, Eve, Mm. you don't really think that God would make you guys suffer want, do you? This is also, it's worth noting, the first... uh, I could never serve a God who blank in the Bible. That's my favorite saying of the unbeliever. I could never serve a God who allows such suffering. Very pious. I could never serve a God who chooses whom he will save. I could never serve a God who makes man the head of his wife. The God I worship would never fill in the blank. Typically, when someone says to you, the God I worship would never, uh, if they say to you, the God I worship would never, uh, you should believe them because they're worshiping a God made in their own image. And and they're buying this same lie, uh, which really brings the word of God under human judgment. Notice that? That's the greatest temptation here, not the tree, not the... Not the fruit, but rather the opportunity to question, critique, and then alter the Word of God. The the Word of God which reveals the character of God. Satan, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, that's not even what he said. God said, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat. But From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Any of these trees, all these trees, an abundance of perfect trees with perfect fruit, beautiful, sufficient, life-giving trees, even an eternal life-giving tree in the midst of this garden, this one that can give you eternal life, all of them are yours. I made them all for you. I'll accept that one. Just that one tree. From the tree singular of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. Singular. For in the day that you eat from it, singular, you will surely die. Now, look at the distortion though a delicate distortion, 
Satan flips it. Uh, making God seem uh, like he's, he's withholding all the trees, plural. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any, plural, tree in the garden? You see how he did that? that that's what Satan does. He, he twists the word. He distorts the word. It only makes sense then that that's what satanic false teachers do then, right? That's right. And to Eve's credit here, she responds admirably in verses 2 and 3. Aside from her addition of the prohibition uh, to, to touch the tree, she nails it here. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it, you shall not touch it, lest you die. Now, again, where she got this idea that they couldn't even touch it, we don't know. Maybe Adam was so careful in his warning to her that he said, okay, you see that tree over there? We can't eat from that thing. So let's play it safe and not even touch it. Okay, don't even go near that tree. Either way, she knows the danger of this tree, doesn't she? She's not going into this thing completely naive here. She knows the consequences. Lest you die, God said. And she rightly and truly, even righteously, corrects this serpent. Listen, bud. God said, we shall not eat from it or we will die. To which Satan responds by shooting back at the woman in verse 4, you surely will not die. So this is straight up and intentional. This is a calculated contradiction of God's word, which always comes after those subtle deceptions. That preceded. It always comes after that little twisting. This is, this is classic deception that we still see today. First, a little bit of twisting to draw you in. Oh, this sounds so spiritual. This sounds so nice. All oh, these people. <laughs> then, an outright denial or rejection or major distortion of God's word and his person. That's how they get you. I'm telling you right now. Satan's pulling out all the stops here. The time for pleasantries is over. It's done at this moment. Eve says, God says, surely we will die. Satan, you surely will not die. That's as black and white as you're going to get. That's polar opposites. You will, you will not. God said, well, God lied. That's what this is about. That's what's happening here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. Eve, you've been hoodwinked. You've been fooled. God didn't mean that. God won't kill you. God won't judge you. That, that's what this is here. It's a, it's a temptation to reject the righteous and just nature of God. It, it's a denial of his holiness, his perfect wrath and justice against unrighteousness and sin. He won't judge you, Eve. You think he's going to kill you guys after all this? After all he's done, you think he's going to kill you? Come on, woman. Don't be such a fool. That's what he's saying here. And then the proverbial nail in the coffin. Here's where the temptation to pride comes in, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, John calls it. It's all right here in verse 5. But it's not from the Father, is it? No, it's from the world. And who's the ruler of this world? That's right, Satan. Who all of a sudden makes Eve think she's owed something from God by making her a false, powerless promise. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there we have it. The same lies, the same lies that we all endure every single day, the lies that say, you know, if we just had a little bit more money this year, we'd be doing all right. And God wants what's best for us, doesn't he? So let's go ahead and fudge those tax returns. Or, oh, I'm so unhappy in my marriage. God doesn't want us to be unhappy. Well, if I could just be with that woman instead of my wife, I'd finally be happy. Oh, I've heard that song. 
It was there by deceit. I destroyed my family. And now I am happy all the day. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? But God wants you to be happy. Women aren't much better. Oh, oh, he treats me so much better than my husband does. He, he makes me feel valued. And I deserve to be valued, right? I should, I should probably take that next step. Or, well, if I can just tell this little lie, I can get myself out of this mess. God would want me to smooth this whole thing over, and I can do it with a quick lie. The truth might actually hurt people, and he wouldn't want me to hurt anyone, right? Even in other ways, oh, if, if, I, if I could just drink this, if you just eat that, buy this, buy that, you will finally be happy. If you just click on this, if you just click on that, if you just please yourself using this image, you will finally be satisfied. If you just change your sexual identity, if you would attempt to change your gender even, you will finally be complete and content. If you just eliminate that mistake that's growing on the inside of you, you will be able to live your life to the fullest, and you deserve that. It's all a lie. We deserve nothing but hell. Think of a couple of biblical examples. <clears throat> Think of a, the Apostle Peter, the powerless promise. You, you deserve, Peter, to enjoy the valor of telling Jesus that you'll defend him to the death, that you won't let him be betrayed into the hands of sinners. The reality, Peter ends up denying that he even knows him three times. Of course, Satan was right there as well. Peter, why should you feel the scorn of being found out as one of Jesus' disciples? He can handle this. It's all the same lie and false promises. Even Jesus wasn't exempt. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. If you are the Son of God, command those stones to become bread. Eat, Jesus. Eat. You're so weak. You're so hungry. Just eat. Just do what I say. Forget this fasting nonsense here. You're the Son of God. You deserve to be satisfied. And Satan took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you, Jesus, if you just fall down and worship me. It's all yours. Just worship me as God instead of worshiping God as God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. There you go. We must be on guard against the false promises of the enemy, our very real enemy. He's a liar. Jesus said the devil is a liar. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For He is a liar and the father of lies. And we buy it all the time. We buy the lies of the enemies. What lies are his lies? Well, in the basic sense, for all of us here, anything that contradicts the will of the true God as revealed in his holy and inspired word. That's a lie. Anything that contradicts God's character as revealed in his holy and inspired word is a lie. And it's a lie from the father of lies. And, and here in chapter 3, Satan lies to Eve by contradicting the clear words of God and then promising this woman that there's even a possibility that she will be like the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God of all creation, that she will be wise, that she will know good and evil like God. In other words, he promises her power. Wisdom is power, and God is selfishly withholding this power from her. That, that's what this is all about, power. He's got what we don't got, and it's just not fair. So go ahead, Eve. Take that fruit. You get what you deserve, girl. Verse 6 says, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, so she took from its fruit and ate. Thus a great tragedy occurs. Why is this so tragic? Because in that moment, she determined to believe and side with Satan, a creature, over Yahweh God, her creator. She chose to buy the lie. She fell for the false promise. Lies and false promises that are still so prevalent today. Lies. There is no God. There was a big bang. We came from primates. The earth is 4.543 billion years old. Or, all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, a Mormon, or a Christian. We all worship the same creator. All are worthy of his love. God is love. He forgives everyone. He would never send anyone to hell. All lies. Maybe a bit closer to home? False promises. Just pray this prayer. Just walk this aisle. Just sign this card. Just make this offering. You're not as dead and depraved as the Bible says that you are. Just let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and he will be obligated to forgive you and bring you into glory. Or, more commonly, now that you believe, you can live any way you want. You got your get-out-of-hell-free card here. Uh, The believer has an excuse to live carnally the rest of their lives. Jesus as Lord? No, that's legalism, man. He's sufficient as your Savior. So go ahead and suck the world dry because you deserve it. You're covered in the blood of the Lamb, so do what you do. You surely will not die. The woman buys it. She's deceived. And this is going to be very, very important and something that we're going to spend most of next week discussing. Eve was deceived, okay? Understand that. Eve was deceived. Even Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the serpent deceived Eve by her craftiness. In fact, he doubles down in a later letter. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into trespass. Now, that's not the slam on the woman that we may think it is. It's actually Paul saying, look, Eve was deceived, which was bad, no doubt, but Adam was not deceived. Rather, Adam deliberately chose to disobey God when she gave him the fruit of this tree. The the section confirms the gross violation of God's commands committed by the man who was the representative of the whole human race. He was the head, right? Just as Brad said last week, he went over this last week, he was our federal head, our ambassador in the garden. And I don't know what he was doing while his wife was off talking to this serpent, but I can tell you this, he didn't do a great job of protecting his wife from the snakes of this world, did he? No. She was deceived into eating. And she likely brought it to him, not wanting him to miss out on the false promise of wisdom as well. But instead of his saying, oh my word, Eve, what have you done here? We're not supposed to do that. We have to cry out to God immediately. Instead of that response, he takes it, he eats it, and violates his probation as he blatantly disobeys the commands of his creator. And here we are, All these years later, still dealing with the consequences as they ate. They were immediately under divine judgment, now knowing evil. Oh, they knew good. Unlike us, they had always existed in a perfectly good environment, but they didn't know evil. But now they did. But they didn't know the extent of their evil. They didn't know the totality of their depravity, nor would they in this moment grasp the consequences of their evil. But, as they say down south, they were fixing to find out. As are we, as we uh, continue together in this third chapter over the coming weeks. But before we close today... I want to bring this back to our place and time, okay? Again, 
we know Satan is very active today. He's very active. This world, this country, even this state and this city. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that these past few years, even months, the satanic influence and demonic activity has begun to ramp up exponentially. Do you feel that way? Good. You see it too, young man. I'm glad you do. Because here locally, we've got a demonic governor signing demonic bills which blatantly attack the most vulnerable among us. Babies, children, crime abounds, domestic violence abounds, lawlessness abounds, and it seems like the criminals are being exalted, liberated, even celebrated, while law-abiding citizens are paying the price. We, We are truly living in an age where what is evil is called good, and what is good is called evil, aren't we? There's no denying that if you're paying attention at all. And it sure seems that Satan and his demons are reigning over all, doesn't it? So, what do we do about it? Well, I have three very quick takeaways for the true believer in Christ this morning, which I believe will be beneficial as we live out the rest of our lives in this corrupted and cursed earth. First of all, and very quickly, we have to remember that Satan has been defeated. Right? That's right, temporally, and he will ultimately be defeated eternally. We must not forget this. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus himself became flesh and blood so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He set his people free from the slavery to sin and death, And Satan. Ultimately, Satan has no power over Christians. None. Paul writes to true born-again believers, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. And he did so at the cross. He has disarmed the demonic rulers, including Satan. Satan has been defeated spiritually and will one day face an eternity of physical torment in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. And that's great news. Amen? Amen. Amen. But part of that is still future. Again, what about the here and now? Okay, second takeaway. Never forget that Satan is a subordinate. He's merely a creature, okay? He's not divine, He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's not present everywhere at all times. And he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Actually, he's very limited and can only act against us when God gives him permission to do so. Think of Job. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your hand. Only do not set forth your hand, excuse me, do not send forth your hand toward him. In other words, don't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. He didn't go beyond the barriers that God had put forth for him. And that's a good thing. Again, it's been said, Satan and his demons never, never act against God's people without the permission of God. And when God gives them permission, he always uses their work to accomplish some divine purpose, often to exalt the power of God and to prove the devotion of his followers. God permits Satan to work the hardest on the noblest servants of God. Be encouraged by that. That puts a different spin on things, doesn't it? Satan is only allowed to go so far, and in most situations, he's even being used by God for our sanctification. Again, he doesn't have any real power over us. Uh, He's like a toothless hound. Having said that, we don't want to be foolish enough to think that we ourselves have power over the devil. Okay? I can assure you, we do not. Even Calvin said, Indeed, conscious of our own weakness and ignorance, let us especially call upon God's help, relying upon him alone, in whatever we attempt, since it is he alone who can supply us with counsel and strength, courage and armor. In other words, we depend on God and God alone to defeat this foe. I've said this before, but I'll never forget that time that I visited, visited the church, our friends down the street. Uh, you had this preacher up on stage hooting and hollering around, 
He's pointing to his watch and saying, you tell that old devil his time is up. And I thought, tell the devil? Um, I'm not telling the devil anything. He's, he's way smarter than I am. He knows his Bible, his Bible way more than I do. Honestly, I'm not trying to have a conversation with Satan. Let's leave the devil telling to God. We're not called to, to fight against demons and the devil. Are you kidding me? Uh, but we are called to resist, right? We are called to stand firm, as Noah will talk about tonight in Ephesians 6. Well, how do we do that? I want to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's, let's visit Apostle Peter here. 1 Peter chapter 5. Just keep your finger there for a moment. I, I do this because I mentioned Peter earlier. <clears throat> and, and I just love his testimony going from the gospel accounts to his epistle. Remember that night that Jesus was betrayed and he said to his disciples, you will all fall away from me this night? But Peter, full of pride, answered, even though they may all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You remember what Jesus said to him? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is essentially saying there, Satan wanted to shake you guys like wheat in a sieve. He wants to consume you guys. He wants to take possession of you, to put you through tremendous trials in life. And then he wants to use those trials to diminish and extinguish your faith in the promises of God. He wants to devour your faith, Peter. And he almost did, right? Three times Peter denied his Lord. But remember, the Lord prayed for him, interceded for him, as he still does for all of us here today. And, and did not let these men get sifted. Now, fast forward a few decades. And who do we see strengthening the brothers? The Apostle Peter. Look what he says in this fifth chapter, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Well, that's the opposite of pride, right? Remember Satan's false promise. Eve, you deserve this. You'll be like God. No, no, no. Peter says, humble yourselves, Christian. Humble yourself. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of the true God. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Oh. That's balm to the weary soul. This was instrumental in my conversion. He cares for you? Yeah, that's what he says right here. It's his words, Christian. He cares for you, believer. He cares for you. Now, more application in verse 8. This is the Lord's prescription for you when you feel like you're under spiritual or demonic attack. Hear these words from the one who was tempted firsthand, but who is now strengthening his brothers, including all true believers here today. He says, be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour well, he's talking to believers there. He wants to consume your faith is what he wants to devour. But Peter says, resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. He then says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. And that's the charge to all of you this morning. Okay? Peter's words. God's words. Be humble. Be sober. Be watchful. Resist the devil. Firm in the faith. Faith in what? 
in what God has clearly revealed to you through his holy and inspired word. Faith in his character. Faith in his promises. Faith in his gospel. Faith in his son. I would encourage you this morning to not judge God's word. To not question God's word. To not doubt God's word, but to study God's word to know God's word, to believe God's word, and to trust God's word with all your heart. So that the next time someone comes to you in whatever form and says, indeed, has God said? You can stand firm by going not to your feelings, but, but, but back to the word of God to verify it, okay? Thereby defeating this faith-devouring devil with the truth in the process. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Lord, we uh, are so thankful, as Noel and the music team come up, uh, we're so thankful that you have defeated our enemy, our adversary, our accuser. But we don't want to be ignorant and we don't want to be arrogant to the fact that he's not still coming after us. He wants to devour our faith as, as your children. We pray that you would pray for us, that you would continue to intercede for us. Uh, as you have. We're just so thankful for your son. I, I pray, Lord, for anyone in here who does not know you, who is still susceptible, even this moment, to not only demonic influence, but demonic possession. I pray that you would do a mighty work in their heart. I pray that you would save their soul and give them the faith to believe in the power of your gospel, the gospel of your son, who said that he came into this world, lived a perfect, sinless life, but he was delivered over to the hands of lawless men. He was crucified, was buried, and raised again on the third day. He ascended back up to your right hand, where he is now ruling and reigning in the hearts of all who belong to you, Lord. I pray that you would uh, cause them to believe today, that they would cry out to you even this morning, ask you to forgive them of their sin, and to wash them clean in the precious blood of Christ, and that they would live their life for you and you alone that they would give you all the praise and all the glory, for you alone are worthy of the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.